the eighth round table discussion produced by transparent media truth this discussion was recorded on july 1st 2020 and focuses on a dark side of the drug war that is often overlooked government persecution of doctors legally prescribing opiates for pain management in 2016 the cdc published a list of regulations requiring many long-term pain patients to taper off their medications or their doctors would be subject to the very laws that put heroin dealers behind bars these regulations disregarded the long-standing sanctity of the patient-doctor relationship and threatened many MDs who felt a reduced prescription would adversely affect the quality of life of their patients with loss of license and even long jail terms. Many long-term pain patients have been reduced to living with debilitating pain, no longer able to access the drugs that previously allowed them to function in a pain-free existence. In many cases, the lack of access to needed pain medication results in the loss of income, depression, and even suicide while doctors' hands are tied. Stay tuned as host Janelle Elgaway of Conspiracies Against Wellness and the Doctor's Corner YouTube channels describes her own travails with pain management with activists from across the spectrum of pain management crisis unfolding in the United States and around the world. She is joined by Dr. Mark Ibsen and retired anesthesiologist Dr. Arnold Feldman as they discuss personal battles with government officials for attempting to supply patients with much-needed pain medication. Janelle is also joined by lawyer Ronald Chapman, who has championed the cause of many in the face of government intervention in the patient-doctor relationship. You can contact him at chapmanlawgroup.com. Janelle also welcomes activist Claudia Mirandi, leader or lead organizer of Don't Punish Pain Rally, attempting to raise awareness and take legislative action against the current attack on proper pain management by federal authorities. Find out more about her work at don'tpunishpainrally.com as well as the doctorpatientforum.com. Also, check out the recently released documentary Pain Warriors for a general overview and more information about this topic. I want to thank Rob Rubin for putting it all together. You can find all the roundtable discussions at www.transparentmediatruth.com. And my name is Doug McKinty, producer and editor at Transparent Media Truth. You can check out my weekly interview podcast, The Shift with Doug McKinty, on social media, your favorite podcast hosting site, or at www.theshiftnow.com. Hope you all enjoy this roundtable discussion, and take it away, Janelle. All right. Hi. Today we are at the round table and we are going to be talking about the cause and effect um, due to the CDC guidelines uh, that were created in 2016 um, and what that has done with, um, with the doctor-patient relationship, uh, what has happened with doctors, and how that is going to affect you. But first, I'd like to go around and introduce everybody. Um, Ronald, Doc, or Ronald Chapman, can we hear a little bit about you yourself first, please. Sure. Hi, my name is Ron Chapman. I'm an attorney and I primarily defend healthcare professionals that have been accused of crimes. And I also conduct a lot of uh, investigations as a result of, of government investigations into healthcare practices. But primarily, um, I've found myself in a niche of defending doctors accused of unlawful prescribing. And I've had uh, been blessed with uh, quite a few trial victories in that area. And I really enjoy uh, helping out doctors achieve compliance, but then also defending them when the government decides to attack them. 
Dr. Mark Ibsen, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm, I'm Mark Ibsen. I am now in the Medicare age group, um, uh, and that's one of the profiles that the DEA uses is uh, older, more experienced doctors. Um, I practiced emergency medicine for about 35 years, started in urgent care in 2010 in Helena, Montana, and found in around 2012, patients started coming to me who'd been cut off from their opiates from their doctors. So I'm a accidental, uh, accidentally involved in this, in this issue. I decided that since I kicked the can down the road for many years as an ER doctor, and I found myself down the road with the can kicked to me, I decided to help these patients uh, because I didn't think it was right that people had to go through withdrawal and be in agony at the same time. So I helped maybe hundreds of patients in my state. Um, and for that, I was um, ultimately um, sanctioned by my medical board uh, for overprescribing narcotics. Uh, and uh, no patient who ever came to me, of course, ever got an increase in their dose. They only got decreases, and I helped them taper. Um, so I have some. Um, um, accidental and involuntary experience with tapering patients suddenly off of opiates. Um, I've been in a seven-year battle with my medical board, which is still going on. Um, I've been investigated uh, by the DEA and by the medical board multiple times, and I've had, I think, 12 cases before the medical board because once I stood up to them, they really went after me. So I am now a cannabis doctor in Montana. I still have my license, and I'm trying to help people as best I can from where I am with the explanation to my patients that I can't help anybody if I'm in jail. So uh, no more opiate prescriptions for me. Six of my patients have died due to loss of access to either my care or the opiates or both. So it's a sad situation. It's something I'm highly motivated to contribute to because I think it's criminal what we're doing to patients and doctors these days. That's all. Thank you, Mark. All right, and we have Ms. Claudia Morandi. Claudia, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Claudia Moranti. I'm the founder of the Don't Punish Pain Rally organization and also the Doctor Patient Forum. My advocacy initially started organizing protests for pain patients throughout the country. We have we started with five members. We have over ten thousand chapters in every state. And my work eventually led me to working with doctors who are targeted, and we now extend ourselves to providers throughout the country, attorneys who represent them, and we are also focusing our energies on the anti-opioid crusaders who have pushed the false narrative surrounding opiates, um, and we're just trying to bring awareness national media-wise to the false narrative surrounding um, opiates. Thank you, Claudia. And Dr. Arnold Feldman, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um my name is Arnold Feldman. I am a physician, uh, retired from practice, and that's that's uh, a long story. But I was a pain practitioner for over 30 years, almost maybe 35 years. One of the early pain practices had the first pain practice in Alabama, the first organized pain practice in Mississippi, pioneered a whole lot of what what happened, meaning the improvement in pain management, just to see it all reversed and go back the other way. I have a, a, a I don't know if it's a unique perspective, but I have an, a, a perspective uh, which, which spans for almost four decades. I have watched all of this transpire and 
uh, am now in the position since I've met Claudia and this group to try to help people, meaning patients, doctors, uh, their, their poor lawyers that don't really understand the, the science of this. And, and, and I think as a group, maybe we can put all of this together and synthesize a, a group of people that can actually affect effectuate some meaningful change. So other than that, I drive around in my RV and I do woodworking and, you, I, and, I, and I repair things. All right, so I would like to know, uh, do you guys believe um, the CDC guidelines is really something that we could point to or the source of why this is all occurring? Who would like to answer that? Well, I'll I take it. Oh, go ahead, Ron. You take it. No, okay. you go. All right. All right. Um, I think that uh, that the CDC guidelines were a symptom and, and not the cause. I think that that uh, early on, I think starting in um, maybe 2006, 2007, we started to see the, the Florida pill mill pop up. And those were clinics where prescriptions were very, very easy to get and very much um, uh, an indication of drug trafficking occurring. Uh, and as a result of that, law enforcement started to ramp up, up efforts to prosecute those types of clinics. And in fact, they were very successful. Um, and, and so as a result, the, the DOJ um, saw that, that they had a lot of work to do and, and went out and, and, and funded a lot of efforts, including the DEA and other prosecutors, to prosecute these so-called pill mills. Well, as prosecutions started um, uh, to increase and a pill mill, the, the instance of these pill mills started to decrease, uh, the DOJ found that they, they were sort of running out of very guilty doctors to go after and started um, prosecuting closer calls. They started prosecuting differences of medical opinion. They started prosecuting um, instances in which a doctor may just be committing malpractice as opposed to outright criminal activity. And they started to try to change the legal standards associated with uh, what, what constitutes the unlawful practice of medicine um, in order to, to, to allow these prosecutions to go through. And the CDC guidelines was sort of the, the capstone on all of the government's efforts to create a standard, a federal standard for how you should prescribe and utilize that standard to show that doctors were practicing outside of it in order to obtain convictions. So the CDC guidelines were created as more of a weapon um, as opposed to a public health tool in order to fuel prosecutions. And that's exactly what we saw happen. The CDC guidelines were immediately taken up by prosecutors and state medical boards and utilized as a weapon against doctors to argue that, that their practice was outside of it. As a result of that, um, you started seeing doctors react, thinking that they were going to end up in jail if they didn't follow those guidelines. And so they started cutting off patients whose MMEs were above 90 and sending them out on the street. And then of course we know what, what happens from there. Um, Claudia, did you want to add something to that or? Uh, yeah. The, so from a, you know, a pain patient's point of view, uh, those CDC guidelines have been weaponized. And I think what we have going for the, the pain patients is that 70, 17 page letter that the AMA uh, just sent to uh, CDC, um, and two things could happen with that AMA letter. Um, hopefully, it will be acknowledged. But my biggest fear with those CDC guidelines is they could actually impose more stringent guidelines. Um, you know, the anti-opioid crusaders uh, 
commented heavily on the CDC portal, really encouraging stop prescribing, people are overdosing. Uh, so I think between that AMA, hopefully the support of the AMA will help rewrite the guidelines in a, in a more positive note. But those CDC guidelines have, have been weaponized, weaponized um, 100%. Well, and that's the thing. All over uh, mainstream media, we see people are dying everywhere from opioids, whether it's illicit manufactured fentanyl that you get on the streets, whether it's pills. I mean, is this necessarily truly true as of today in 2020? I'll let uh, Mark that Mark, one. would you like to answer that? Oh, I can't hear Mark. Yes, it's true. Um, um, and um, I'd like to go even a bit further back. Um, um, in 2004, Dr. Hurwitz um, uh, was a doctor in Virginia who was the first person who had this Controlled Substance Act weaponized against him. And of course, the Controlled Substance Act was designed to protect doctors with the definition of um, a drug dealer as someone who sells drugs without having a medical license. So the Controlled Substance Act protects doctors because we have a medical license and we have a DEA certificate. So um, in that case, uh, Dr. Hurwitz uh, uh, was able to obtain some acknowledgments from the DEA that he didn't do anything criminal. And those, um, those acknowledgments were excluded from his case and he was convicted for prescribing opiates to patients who were diverting them. And that formula has, they've gone back to that formula repeatedly for the 16 years since then, uh, arresting doctors who are prescribing medications uh, to patients who need them. Um, so my case began before the control, before, before the CDC guidelines came out. Um, it, it, my, the rumblings of my case started in 2012. Um, my case, the Board of Medicine went against me in 2013. We, those of us who were in this conversation back then could tell that the CDC guidelines were going to be weaponized and could tell that there was no science to uh, base uh, any of these recommendations on. So consequently, since there are 100 million people in pain in America based on uh, several studies that, have, that were done in the early 2010 area, then um, and at least 20 million patients with high-impact pain um, doctors like Dr. Smithers, Dr. Henson, Dr. Bash in California, Dr. Bauer in Ohio, uh, and now recently Dr. Uh, Kim in Oklahoma, um, are basically um, taking the patients who are the sickest of the sick, who are now being concentrated in pain clinics. They used to be cared for by their primary care doctor. So the the consequences of all of this anti-opiate activity, which is essentially a false flag, um, scapegoating the medical profession for a heroin and fentanyl epidemic that started long before. Uh, consequently, we now have patients suffering because they can't get access. And doctors, like myself even, not willing to prescribe any opiates anymore because of the threat of jail time. They, they made it very clear to me that I would be going to jail if I didn't uh, stop prescribing opiates. Uh, so um, it is a sad situation. We've taken a world-class pain management system with a few breakdowns in it. And we're now a third world country with people unable to get their pain uh, taken care of. And cruelty is ascendant and 
um, I'm begging us as a culture to make empathy great again. Um, I think a lot of Go ahead, Ron. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'd like to to build off of what Mark said. I think think he raises some great points. And and to go back to the, the Controlled Substances Act, that was created in 1974. Um, and it was passed in. And, and basically what it says is uh, you can't be a drug dealer. And then it also says if you're a doctor, you can obviously prescribe drugs provided you do it for a legitimate medical purpose. That phrase legitimate medical purpose is now what the DEA has used against doctors by sort of changing what that means. It used to mean back when case called Gonzalez versus Oregon came out, United States versus Moore came out. It used to mean that if a doctor acted as a drug dealer and wasn't practicing any medicine at all, he could be convicted for violating that act. And so there were a lot of doctors who were prosecuted for doing just that. But then when the CDC guidelines came out, those guidelines were used to drastically change that phrase to mean acting outside of a legitimate medical purpose meant you weren't following the CDC guidelines. And the impact of that is what I, I believe has caused a tremendous amount of suicides of uh, Claudia's constituents and other pain patients. It's caused doctors like Mark who have been unable to effectively treat their patients that come to their door. And it's caused one of the greatest public health crises that I think that we've ever seen in this country. Well, and I, we also have to mention though, I mean, it's even trickled down further than just like these intractable pain patients. I mean, regular people are having a hard time, say if they get surgery, uh, they're not able to get medications after surgery. I know my mom had stage four liver cancer and after surgery, they gave her Tylenol. Well, I mean, how come it's happening like this? And, and I mean, like, I mean, basically anybody can have this issue now, right? Well, it's lack of education and fear, I think. I think that um, the proper place for disputes about medical treatment is in front of the medical board. The DOJ got impatient because medical boards for a while weren't doing anything about the issue and educating their physicians. And so they decided to use their prosecutorial tools, which is a pretty aggressive use of the power that they have available. Uh, we, We have no middle ground for doctors. We're not educating them properly on the use of opiates, and we're unfairly punishing them when they don't conform to the ridiculous standards and shifting standards that are being put out there in the public health space. May I, may I chime in? Please. Okay. I have, like I said, I, I don't feel like I'm that old, but I've been around this game a long time. Medical boards, medical boards are now partners with the DEA. They are not at odds about anything. They often have offices in the same buildings. And when the DEA feels like they can't prosecute somebody, they go to the medical board. And when the medical board wants to crucify somebody, they refer the case to the DEA. So we're now talking about essentially the same entities. And so don't look to medical boards for any help in solving any of these problems. The only way, in my opinion, is that these problems are going to get solved is by in the court of public opinion and in the court of law. You will get no solace by having a, a conversation in front of the CDC, the FDA, the AMA, or any of those other organizations. Nobody is willing to take a risk and put their necks on the chopping block because at any time, the medical board can take your license away 
summarily without a hearing in any state in this country. And so we need to get some wins. And that is is the, the definition. Uh, uh, I mean, we need the definition of what are wins. We need a win in the court of public opinion. We need a win in the courtroom. We need some retired DEA agents to say, no, this is ridiculous. We need a lot of those things. But we haven't gotten there yet. And I think Ron has made some great inroads, but Ron is one guy. And this is a nationwide, and now we've exported this. This is a worldwide problem. Yeah, Ron, I was wondering why, um, you know, if a doctor uh, is brought up on charges, why have so many doctors, uh, even though they could possibly, probably are innocent, why have they been guilty? Why are they going to jail? It's a very good question. First, I have to say that I agree 100% with everything Dr. Feldman said. I think that change in this area will only happen by beating the DOJ back in the courtroom and also in the, in the court of public opinion. And, and what that means is when doctors are being persecuted, uh, we can't get the average attorney who takes a lot of money and ultimately tries to force a doctor to plea. We need somebody who's got the skill, integrity, and ability, and, and many times the resources to be able to take on this issue. And and I'll just be blunt. The, re the reason why the reason why doctors are are being convicted um, in in these these types of cases regularly is is uh, I think a complex problem to solve, but primarily related to resources, inadequate counsel, and inability to understand the standard. So commonly a lot of defense attorneys uh, have, have come to the belief that because the DOJ says that this is unlawful prescribing or running a pill mill, that it therefore is. And so a lot of defense attorneys are actually forcing their clients or strongly advising them to take pleas uh, for types of conduct that, that shouldn't be considered unlawful in the first place. So for instance, I've heard conversations with defense attorneys and their clients telling their clients, well, I saw you give Xanax and an opiate in the same prescription or in the same visit, and that's unlawful. Or I saw you prescribe more than 90 morphine milligram equivalents, which is a, a standard for a dosage, uh, and that's unlawful. I've heard defense attorneys parrot the standards that the DOJ use to describe unlawful conduct against their client and convince them that it's stepping outside the law. And so many of these unknowing doctors go, oh my gosh, I did violate the law because my attorney's telling me that, and I better take a plea because controlled substance guidelines uh, for federal sentences, the amount of time that you do in jail, are used, the same guidelines that, that are used against common drug dealers are used to, to prosecute and sentence physicians, which means that you could be doing time very similar to the time that, uh, that, uh, that Johnny Depp's character in, in Blow, George Young, did uh, for you know, importing um, thousands of kilos of, of cocaine into the United States. A doctor like Dr. Smithers can end up with a sentence of 40 years for operating a clinic for a few years that the government disagrees with. And when a doctor is facing that kind of time, and the person that they're looking for to defend them is telling them that they did something wrong, it almost creates a perfect storm where they have to plead guilty and lay down. And the message that I'm trying to deliver to physicians is, uh, you have to understand the standard, you have to understand what is actual criminal activity, you have to get adequate counsel in order to defend yourself, and then you have to take the DOJ out in the courtroom and say, listen, differences of medical opinion are not criminal conduct, and you have to fight them. 
And I've been blessed with a few trial victories and I'm gonna continue the campaign to get many more. Uh, Dr. Feldman's right though, I'm only one attorney. I can't defend everybody. And we gotta find a way to get adequate defenses to these doctors in order to prevent unnecessary convictions and in order to make sure uh, that they don't plead to things that aren't criminal activity. Can I add to that, please? Please do. Um, I'm, uh, I probably would have, if I was born in Ireland in the 1860s, they probably would have strung me from a tree. So I'm, I have a sort of a rebellious nature. And I could tell that the Board of Medicine was up to no good. Uh, and I'm one of the few doctors, I think, who've been able to actually survive this first by the grace of God and the fact that the DEA didn't arrest me. And the second is, is that I could see that the board of medicine was going to screw me in a dark alley. And, um, I made them screw me in the public comments, um, because I went public and I had, I used as much press and Facebook and all that other stuff as I could, because it was clear to me that they were not listening to the facts and that they were basically running a witch hunt against me. And the formula <clears throat> that I can see that the board that the uh, DEA and boards of medicine use is that they charge you and you're in the headlines for a few days. They raid your clinic so your patients can't get care anymore and they take your records so your patients can't get follow up anymore and they feel abandoned. And in that next few weeks, your reputation as a physician is bleeding out rapidly. And if you don't stand up to that, then the patients begin to believe that the law enforcement guys must be right because he's in big trouble and he must have done something terrible. Then then what they do is they lay siege to your well-being and your assets. In other words, they, they raid you, but they don't arrest you or charge you or fulfill on their case for another couple of years, during which time all your patients have found another doctor, they've lost faith in you, and you've lost the most precious thing that you've built up over an entire career, which is your reputation and ability to, to be seen as an expert in healthcare. So in addition to everything Ron just said, I agree with, we need sort of like a, like what Claudia has been doing is sort of a public relations campaign for doctors who've been arrested. Now, most lawyers don't want their clients to be talking to the press or giving interviews because you might say something stupid, but, Essentially, we are beset with not only a legal attack, it's a public relations nightmare for a doctor. And that is terrifying for doctors who put their whole heart and soul into their career. Like, you take, you take my career from me, I have to reinvent myself. I am a doctor. I am a healer. It's a being thing, not a doing thing. And so from the standpoint of this kind of attack, it is very difficult to withstand that financially, emotionally, and um, public relations-wise. And I, I think one shift is to start getting doctors to um, respond to these accusations truthfully and say, this is what I did, and, the, and how could this prescription that I wrote three years ago be illegal now? It's sort of an ex post facto law. I mean, um, when you fill people's prescriptions for five years and then you charge them with um, – you know, five times 12 is 60. So 60 felonies for the prescriptions you prescribed to these patients. And then all of a sudden, in retrospect, it was illegal. How can that be even remotely constitutional? That's all. And what, all right, so um, these doctor's cases, what is this doing to the rest of 
the United States and doctors in it? Like, I mean, how are they taking it? Is it scaring them? Um, I, what's going on? What is the trickle down from that? Uh, could I could I answer? The those of us that have been in pain, I always called it pain medicine because you know there's a lot more to it than just managing the pain. There's diagnosing the pain and treating the pain and managing the pain. But in pain medicine, just and most of us were anesthesiologists. In the beginning, 97% of, of pain physicians were anesthesiologists. And it, as an anesthesiologist, which I was, you have to learn to get your, your uh, uh, self-satisfaction by what you do, not any, any pats on the back, so to speak, meaning you were necessary but people didn't really appreciate you necessarily. In pain medicine, oh, I saw this happening over the years. People were referring patients to pain specialists, first because the pain specialists were hyper-focused and maybe better at it, but then it became a dumping ground because they always realized that this, these patients were difficult and often a liability. Then when the rest of medicine had made pain medicine a bona fide specialty. Nobody wanted to take these pain patients anymore. And so most of medicine has divested themselves of chronic pain and really, until this AMA statement, really don't care what happens because it really doesn't affect them anymore. So if you're an orthopedist or a neurosurgeon, all you have to do is give a patient three days to seven days worth of pain medication, and you really don't have to worry about it anymore. So we're basically out here by ourselves until we get the court of public opinion to bring us back in the mainstream. That's how I see it. And um, Claudia, how do you see that, like, how do you see we shifting this? And so we have a different take on the word opioids and and uh, the doctor-patient relationship. How do you think we can change this? Well, I don't think um, anybody counted on the patients and the doctors being brought together. And I don't think that they counted on patients fighting so hard for the doctors and then also introducing lawyers into the mix. So I'm approaching this from a much different angle than most advocates have. Um, when I come for you, you better hide under your bed because Dr. Feldman and I, if, if we don't hear hundreds of heartbreaking stories um, weekly, it, it, the number is astounding. And when we hear one story, another comes rolling in. I think, um, and Janelle, I've got to tell you, I, my pain patient stories used to keep me awake until I started talking with the doctors. And I just thought, you know, oh my God, like these doctors, they've worked, they've been in college for 12 years has, has gone into their education and the hundreds, thousands of hours spent in the clinic. And in one fell swoop, a cop, a cop who has qualified immunity robs them of everything, um, destroys them, sends them to prison. So I think the, um, I don't think the government accounted for patients fighting as hard as they are now. These people, they are fighting for their lives. Uh, I just, um, 
you know, it's, it's a little discouraging at times because you've got Dr. Ibsen on this, you've got Dr. Feldman. These are highly respected, attorney, uh, you know, doctors. We've got Ron Chapman in the mix. So we'll, but we know we fight, we fight hard. We fight differently now. Let me ask everybody this too. I mean, this really originally at least was about fear of addiction. Is this still about fear of addiction? I mean, has addiction gone up? Is, is this really why all this is going on? I don't know. Who would like to answer? I would like to answer. I, I think that, I think that if you go back to, and I saw this actually yesterday again, reminded me, if you go back to 1950, you know, one, one and a half to 2% of the population, somewhere in that number had, had, had an addiction problem. Now we actually have, you know, we have more Americans now, but it's still one and a half to two percent of the population have an addiction problem. And so, you know, can you can you make somebody an addict? Well, you know, I'm not an addictionologist. I'm not even sure what an addictionologist is, but they claim to be a specialty. And an addictionologist once told me, "You cannot make somebody an addict. You're born an addict." And so the only thing that makes them an addict is their ability to get or the only thing that facilitates their addiction is addictive substances now that being said we cannot and nobody would say that we must eliminate opiate or actually andrew kalani would say this we should eliminate opiates from the landscape well i got news for you I'm an anesthesiologist. I have been in there when we operated on people's brains, hearts, livers, transplants. You can't do these surgeries without opiates. So opiates are here to stay. We must destigmatize this. And this is an effort, like I said, it's going to be fought in the court of public opinion mostly. We need the DEA in front of a congressional hearing. We need the judges to understand. We need lawyers to be bold. We need money. That we have not mentioned money. We need some millions of dollars to get this effort going and and sustain it. Um, why has it been so hard to get the general public to be aware of this? I, what's going on with that part of this? I can answer that, Janelle. Oh, can I jump in really quickly, Mark? I just want to, you know, the rallies we have the, the hardest time getting national media. These people, you know, the media is, is driven. They, the media continues to drive this false narrative. We simply can't attack this from a pain patient's point of view in order to get the media involved. A different um, angle needs to be brought into the mix because the media does not care to hear about patients needing opiates. What we need to push now to bring attention, to bring awareness to what the doctors are um, going through is we need obviously legislation, but we need to tackle what the anti-opioid crusaders have done to this community. They're pushing so hard to replace all opiates. And that was stated on that CDC portal with buprenorphine. Um, and now it's being prescribed post-op. And I just had my first case um, at a hospital when the palliative care team came in and said they were going to prescribe buprenorphine. And I said, well, 
why? I mean, this person, what's going to happen if their receptors get filled with that view? So, you know, I have this expression and it sounds a little silly, but we need to make this situation pretty because nobody cares about the pain patient needing opiates because we just look like a bunch of drug-seeking addicts. And that's exactly what uh, Andrew Kolodny, prop, shatterproof, fed up, farmed out, stop now. Um, these people are profiting off of people who lost loved ones. Um, and they're making millions and millions of dollars off a crisis that never existed. While there were bad apples, we've not had a pain medication over prescribing problem. There have been pill mills, but prescribing has been steadily declining since 2011. And we have skyrocketed um, nationwide. And it's going to get much worse over the next six months because we live in a very sad country. People self-medicate, whether it's with drugs, sex, alcohol. It, it's not a prescription pain medication problem. The DEA, the DOJ, they pursue low-hanging fruit, and that's why we need Ron, uh, Ron Chapman in doctor's offices. Um, and we need, you know what else we need? We need a legal defense fund to help out these doctors, and that's why I thought a pain patient union with dues, we can help these doctors out. Who's got $2 million laying around to fight a legal defense fund? We do not have a prescription pain medication problem. If we did, we wouldn't be seeing the spike in overdosing, and it's going to get much worse. One last thing I want to just um, mention, um, Andrew Kolodny insinuated that blacks are better off not receiving opiates because he's actually doing the black community a favor because blacks are more likely to abuse their medication. What a disgusting, vile statement to make, right? Why are black, is their skin different? So it's this systemic racism, it's racial profiling, it's profiling at the pharmacy, it's profiling in the doctor's office. The profiling is a never-ending, disgusting situation. Um, and hopefully with the Don't Punish Pain Rally organization, we can, you know, we can bring this to fruition with national media. And something I want to mention too is, because I think a lot of people um, think that the people that the, the patients, this is people that take it chronically, uh, which is regularly for long periods of time. It's not just a regular, oh, I have a backache or you know a toothache. I mean, these are people with rare, painful, incurable diseases that are going to be lifelong. Um, and something that happens to them is, and, and actually, first I wanted to mention, Claudia, like you, you were, you you hit on it. A lot of what they're uh, coming into is if they could find a doctor to prescribe, then the pharmacy might not fill it. And then if they can find a pharmacy to fill it, then their insurance might not cover it. I mean, it's really, really making it hard for all of us. Um, I, I'm I'm a patient of 26 years now. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about uh, tapering and what that is. Uh, Mark, can you um, explain? Because that's something that most patients are having to go through now. Uh, can you can you tell us how many are um, being forced tapered and and what it is? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I was taught um, as a young doctor a long time ago that, um, and particularly as an ER doctor, that 
withdrawing from opiates feels awful, but never kills anybody. That is from statements and studies done on heroin addicts who generally were below 30 years old. And, and, it, and that's been the uh, mythology uh, behind this idea that nobody really needs these medications. And that, yeah, you might be uncomfortable if you withdraw, but you'll get over it and you'll be fine. And that's a false narrative because the people we're seeing now, of course, are mostly over 40, have chronic illnesses. Um, and if you put someone like that into withdrawal, you can kill them. Um, so it's an unsafe practice to put a patient into withdrawal, claiming that they're um, uh, a bad person for taking, taking these medicines. The first patient I saw from Dr. Christensen was a fellow who is in obvious withdrawal. And um, he had been seeing Dr. Christensen and was on high doses of methadone and oxycodone. And they seemed like they were um, uh, huge, terrible doses. Um, and Dr. Christensen got arrested and raided and all that stuff happened to him. And his patients, 22 of his patients ended up coming to me. And the first one I saw was a 55-year-old guy in chronic pain. And he was sweating and having chest pain in my urgent care um, and I realized immediately that this is a whole new ball game. This is a public health crisis caused by boards of medicine and law enforcement by raiding a doctor's office and putting all of their patients into withdrawal. That's where the term opiate refugee came from, was just the idea that chronic pain patients are habituated to these medications. They're dependent upon them, but they're not addicted, with the definition of addiction being taking a harmful substance and continuing to use it despite its ongoing harm. These patients aren't addicted. They have chronic pain, and the pain, uh, pain management has helped them function. Now you see someone who's in withdrawal, and they are not functional. They're, we're trying to save their lives. So that, that is the ultimate um, in misunderstanding or superstition or our own variation of the Spanish Inquisition where people are thinking, oh, bad patient, bad doctor, bad medicine, um, take it all away, make this problem go away in honor of Steve Rumler, who was an addict who took a bunch of heroin and died and it had nothing to do with his, with his uh, opiate prescriptions. And that, that's the usual myth is that Johnny's the star quarterback, he breaks his collarbone, Seven years later, he dies of a heroin overdose, and somebody thinks it was because of the Percocet some doctor gave him for his collarbone fracture. And we've got to treat acute pain because, because you can't recover unless your pain's treated. You can't rehab a, uh, uh, an injured body that, that is in agony. And, and now we're not even treating acute pain, and we're not treating chronic pain. And it's, and, and it's criminal, and it's harmful. And we haven't even had the interest to do the public health studies to indicate what a public health crisis it is for somebody like Dr. Pompey to lose his prescribing or Dr. I'm sure Dr. Feldman's patients underwent this. My patients did this and six of them died and it's a tragedy and unnecessary. And that's what has, that, that's what I think we have to continue to communicate to our, um, the other people in our culture. You know, as part of a movie that was uh, designed about this, it's called pain warriors it took seven years to make. The person in charge of making the movie had chronic pain, so she was um, had to pace herself and, and was sick for a year and a half after the movie was made. And, and this movie tells a very sad story about patients who've been abandoned um, by their doctors and kill themselves. Uh, and, you know, Ron, Ron, if I, if I could chime in, from the legal point of view, there's things that, you know, my wife is a chronic pain patient, and so I go through this 
this this crazy rigmarole every month with the, the doctor visit, the pharmacy visit, the, 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 the acquisition of medication. And pharmacists are now assuming the role of, of physician in a way, and they're changing prescriptions or forcing the change in prescriptions. And I believe that a, 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 a quick legal challenge in a local courtroom to, to enjoin a pharmacist to fill a legitimate prescription as written would go a long way. But you got to have an attorney that, that, that understands the system and understands why that's important. And most attorneys are, they're just not, they're not invested in this, in this mission like you are. But for instance, my, my wife had a pharmacist the other day saying, well, I think your doctor's writing too many pills. Well, she called the doctor and he said, yes, that's exactly how many I intended to prescribe, but they would not fill the prescription. Yeah. That, a, that a judge should rule on. And, you know, the, the, the law is clear. A pharmacist cannot practice medicine. But see, these are the kind of challenges that we... If we win two and three and four of these small challenges, it adds up to a force that will affect the outcome of some of these larger cases. Well, let, me, let me ask you guys this, too. I mean, the whole thing is pain. So if you don't have pain medication, what are they saying that you are supposed to do for these horrible diseases? So, Janelle, I'd like to answer that because sure. this is... This is a this is a very interesting problem that the Department of Justice and medical boards have created, uh, and also the insurance companies. First of all, I just want to point out that I believe that this is all about money. It's about money for the government. It's about money for the insurance companies. Um, it, it's just about money all the way around, and here's why. Um, chronic pain, well, let me start with this. Medicare and Medicaid spending is the highest line item of the federal budget, period. It's the highest. We spend more on Medicare and Medicaid than anything else in this country. And I think that the Department of Justice and the executive branch, and also likely Congress, know that that spending is just going to become more and more extreme over time. And what the Department of Justice has found is that they believe that fraud, waste, and abuse of Medicare is actually costing this country billions every single year. And in order to solve that, what they've decided to do is interject um, uh, what their belief about medical decision-making into the doctor's office. So doctors must be quicker. Doctors must be cheaper. Doctors must get compensated a lot less. And there we, we have a problem where the federal government is telling a doctor um, what he can prescribe a medication for and how he or she can prescribe that medication. And then we have insurance companies and Medicare declining to cover alternative therapies such as injections, which are, are a hotly contested item, but alternative uh, medications, and almost forcing doctors to prescribe more commonly abused opiates like oxycodone and oxycontin and Dilaudid and things like that. So, so we have the government putting pressure on, the, on doctors from the top saying, you, you can't prescribe as much and you have to be quicker and you also have to be cheaper in what, in what you're trying to do. And then from the private side, we have the private insurance companies who are trying to save money, preventing doctors from using their alternative therapies in order to treat chronic pain. And so we have all of these institutions squeezing the doctor and preventing the doctor from doing what the doctor wants to do to treat the chronic pain patient. 
And of course, this is becoming a lot cheaper for the federal government because there's less opiates being prescribed. There's less back injections being performed. There's less procedures being performed. And the pain patient is left on the sidelines without adequate care because they have doctors that are second guessing uh, what they're doing. So for the government, I don't believe that this has ever been about pain. I don't actually think that they, they care about the, the Claudia side of this, the pain patient side of it. I don't think that they listen to that voice very well because what they're noticing is that we're spending a lot of money on Medicare and Medicaid. Insurance companies are spending a lot of money on chronic pain and we need to find a way to shut that down. And their efforts to shut that down have potentially killed thousands of people and put a lot of doctors in a very difficult position in order to determine whether or not they should comply with these laws or effectively treat their patients. Well, did they expect everybody to just die off? Is that what they're wanting? I mean, well, you know, I think that, that when we're dealing with a large, slow-moving bureaucracy, it doesn't think with one mind and it doesn't speak with one voice. It just sort of carries on the mission of what it does. And so... I think that the only way to stop this is to get some decision makers up there in power to pay attention and realize that there's actual pain being caused and to realize that if they try to take a, a swing at a doctor and prosecute him or her, that they're going to miss because we're going to fight back, just like Claudia said. So who um, actually, oh, go ahead, Claudia. I have to mention this. You know, are you just asked a great question. Are we supposed to die off? Well, no. What? Gary Mandel and Andrew Kolodny, shatterproof, fed up, uh, stopped, farmed out. They met with five governors at a conference and they laid out a plan. Let's start teaching kids when they're in school why they need to take buprenorphine instead of FDA approved uh, narcotics and why doctors need to only prescribe buprenorphine instead of those FDA approved narcotics and they were they were received because they they've made their way into australia canada the uk these are thought leaders behind this and their their sentiment is their mantra is and we saw a youtube video if you're not prescribing suboxone you're not doing your job correctly uh so the it's always money this is uh they these people have raised over 15 million dollars and it just keeps growing and growing and growing this is the buprenorphine machine the suboxone machine um in case of uh, that, doesn't know what is buprenorphine or and suboxone what is that compared to a regular pain medication can I, can I ask buprenorphine? Buprenorphine came out in the 1980s as a pain medication, an injectable pain medication by that Reckitt company, which I think is a British company. And it came out in little ampules to use in surgery as an alternative to morphine. And so it never really caught on in the United States, meaning it just wasn't a very popular drug for a couple of reasons. Number one, Morphine is known. It's been around a long time. It was relatively inexpensive. And number two, it worked. So the question is, if it's not broken, uh, why should we fix it? So then the record company in, in um, Europe came out with a sublingual form of the drug called Temgesic. Well, that was never very effective either. And so they, they did some studies. and They said, you know, this might be a suitable drug for heroin addiction. So they basically took an unsuccessful drug, they did some minor studies, changed the labeling, 
and then brought it to the United States. Well, that required some legislative changes, which happened around the year 2003, I think, where a doctor could get a special designation from the DEA and a special number to prescribe for up to 30 patients for a drug uh, for addiction to compete with methadone, so to speak. So again, you have 30 patients per doctor. That's not a big part of the market. And so therefore, remember, the Sacklers were making billions of dollars on OxyContin, which is a reasonable drug. But then these other companies said, hey, there's X amount of billions to go around. Why don't we get this money? And so they vilified OxyContin. There was some good reason for that. And now they're trying to supplant those OxyContin dollars with Suboxone dollars. So if the Sacklers are worth $20 billion, then these manufacturers said, well, we can get that $20 billion. And then the, their, their thought leaders like Andrew Kolodny, uh, you know, make a number of millions of dollars. So the money is not being spent. Additional monies are not being spent. It's just being reapportioned, if you understand what I mean. And so in order to do that, you have to vilify the, the opiate drugs. But Suboxone is an opiate drug, but that's not something they, that they tell anyone. And why are they okay, okay with that, but they're not okay with oxycodone or Percocet or whatever? Why is that? Can I speak to that? Yeah. Um, Suboxone is given with, a, with an uh, opiate agonist so that it's difficult to abuse. Um, and therefore difficult to die from. So when addicts are on Suboxone, they can't kill themselves with it. They can't take so much that they have respiratory depression and stop breathing, which is the main side effect of heroin and illicit fentanyl is you stop breathing and die. So Suboxone is a lot safer than methadone or heroin or fentanyl. Um, and it does relieve some of the um, uh, jonesing for the drug. Um, or the difficulty with withdrawal. So it might actually be a decent drug for addicts. The, the problem is, just like uh, Arnold said, there's only 1% to 1.5% of the population that are addicts. But there's 100 million pain patients. That's a huge market, and they're going for that market. Um, the other thing I wanted to add in terms of culprits, and this is with all due respect to Arnold and other anesthesiologists who... Um, help with pain, the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians also have some blood on their hands. Um, they, um, their uh, president, um, Dr. Manchikanti, put lots of articles um, in the medical literature saying opiates don't work. Well, obviously, they do work. Lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. So, um, they published lots of articles saying, well, the opiates have never been tried for more than three months, so therefore we can't endorse them. And, and basically that's true for any other medication that's passed FDA inspection. And so there's a false narrative for at least 10 years in the medical literature that we shouldn't be using opiates because they don't work when it's not true and there's no proof that they don't work. They just said, oh, we haven't proven that they, that they worked that a long period of time. So, um, a lot of the younger physicians who've been, um, I would say, just sort of indoctrinated into this idea that opiates are bad, uh, physicians, medical students, pre-med residents, everything, we're only concerned with badness. And if there's some badness about something, we're going to avoid it because 
all we want to do is graduate and be able to help patients. We want to stay away from the from getting arrested. We want to stay away from drug abuse ourselves. We want to stay away from um, uh, you know all other badness so that we can continue to do our profession. And somehow we have forgotten that there was a heroin addiction problem in the 1980s that nobody really cared about because it was in the inner city and nobody cared about that patient population. But now opiates are now, uh, or, or opioids, I should say, and heroin is now a suburban drug and it's helped, it's affecting white kids. And these families are not willing to, um, these families are looking for scapegoats. You know, their kid died. It's gotta be somebody's fault. It must be the doctor's fault. And you, and they can't dig deep enough to find the other scapegoats in this system. That's a sad commentary on our culture. Right, bingo, right? It, it's so it's so awful because Andrew Kolodny, Shatterproof, Fed Up, they, they're profiting off of people who have lost loved ones. And they use these people as pawns, as minions to go after people who take their medication responsibly. And all these hateful anti-opioid crusaders have achieved is a spike in overdose. And it's... You know, when you, I'm a mom to two teenagers, so nobody wants their kid getting hooked on anything, but you, you know, they're, they're pursuing the wrong community, but they're doing, you know, props, you know, farmed out, fed up in an effort to heal their pain. They are now inflicting pain on millions of the, you know, the disabled community. And it's just another vile attack on the pain patient brought to you by very wealthy people. That Gary Mendel is a millionaire. These are all very, very wealthy people who have lost a loved one to addiction. So they're making up the rules. If a doctor prescribes, an attorney general just put out a, a, a press release, Pam Bondi in Florida. She said, if any doctor is prescribing more than this amount, um, you let me know we're going after them. I mean, who's going to sign up to be a doctor? What's going to happen? Who will be left to prescribe? Because now even palliative care doctors, they're, they're not, they're not going to, who's going to want to prescribe when you know there's a cop in your office? What's, but who will prescribe? Who will be left to prescribe? May I, may I make a comment? Mark mentioned, well, uh, and that's the thing too. Um, go ahead. I said Mark made a comment about the ASIPP, which is a group called the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, and, and Laxman Chikanti. Now, I used to belong to that group, and at first I thought it was a reason, I'm talking about 15 years ago, reasonable group trying to get some recognition for the things that we did. But what Manchikanti did, he, he's not stupid. What Manchikanti did is he identified about four. U.S. congressmen and collected monies and supported. There was one from New Jersey, uh, uh, one from uh, Kentucky, one from uh, Minnesota or Michigan. And these people, we, meaning that group, supported them heavily. And they, su they supported us in Congress with recognition and interventional pain. All of a sudden, it's not even a a board that a boarded specialty that's recognized by the American Board of, of, of Medical Specialties. But Lax got monies from doctors 
and then put on meetings and Oh, I was booted out. He he kept the, the, the name in the news, and I don't think Lax was necessarily anti-opiate, but he was more interventional pain. And so the lesson is we've got to identify some congressional members that we can support that will help our cause. Yes. Um, Claudia, are you there? Mm -hmm. Can um, you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Did you want to um, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what a pain patient is and who, what they go through, what, the life sure. of yeah. Right. So for people, you know, I have an expression, it, you're not affected until you are affected. And most of the lawmakers I sit down with, you know, they're like, oh, I, I had no idea this was happening. Why would you need opiates? Do you want to be on drugs forever? But the life of a pain patient is if you're fortunate to find a doctor who's willing to prescribe, which is just plain dangerous at this point, you are white knuckling it on the way to your pain management visit and your heart is racing, you're filled with anxiety and you're wondering, is today the day that I get cut? And prop Andrew Kolodny, Gary Mendel, Shatterproof, they would all say, well, that's because they're addicts and addicts are jonesing as mark said they're looking for their drug and if you're um if you're fortunate if your doctor chooses to continue to prescribe you've got a pretty good shot of the doctor saying i can't um i don't feel comfortable prescribing anymore uh we're going to start to you know to taper you because it doesn't like the opioids are working. So you have that hypesia. I laugh every time I hear that term. Dr. Feldman said you have a better chance of being bitten by a monkey. And now you have this uncomfortable conversation with the doctor. You don't know what to say. So these people, it's hard to advocate for yourself. Well, when you leave, before you leave the doctor's office, you're subjected to a urine drug screen. And those are prone to error. And you hope that the test is fine, and you hope that the next visit isn't when you're going to, you know, when you hit the guillotine. But when you drive to the pharmacy, that's another angst-filled visit. And when you get to the pharmacy, you've got a 60% chance of the pharmacy telling you, I'm not feeling this. I don't feel comfortable feeling this. I'm going to call your doctor and um, tell them that I'm only going to give you 90 pills for a month instead of 120 pills a month. Or the pharmacist will say, well, I'm going to fill it, but you have to fill three other non-opioid scripts. And when I, and th this is happening, this happens to Dr. Feldman and his wife monthly. Uh, you know, I just, I just interviewed a pharmacist, but that's the life of a pain patient. And it's every four weeks. And what these large chain pharmacies do is if you question, well, why won't you fill the script? They'll say, well, um, it's our policy. So I just called Walgreens. I said, well, what is your policy? And they said, well, we have an internal policy regarding the policy. And I said, wait, your policy has a policy? I mean, this is insanity. This can't be legal. So if you're a mom and your kid has an earache and you go to get your kid the pink stuff and the pharmacist's like, well, I'm going to give you this, Miss Mirandi, but you have to get some Coley's. Well, I don't need Coley's. Well, it doesn't matter. We, for ratio reasons. And what's ratio? Well, the DEA. What's the DEA? So, look, this is 
this is bananas. We've hit lunacy. But does a person have that same problem when they go to get their Suboxone filled? No. So there's a lot of challenges to the life of a pain patient. Um, and I'd like to hear from both uh, Dr. Ibsen and Dr. Feldman. What is it a life like in the day of being a doctor in this era right now? Well, um, uh, you know, okay. I, I, I'm not practicing right now. And, and for the past 20 years, every time I wrote a prescription, this is the truth. Every time I wrote a prescription, I had to look at that patient. And I had a good, pretty good set of patients, meaning I, I was not a high prescriber, but you have to look at your opiate patients as, number one, is this a, is this a confidential informant of the DEA? Now, I swear to God, one time I thought this guy was wearing a wire, and I stood up and I said, open up your goddamn shirt, you motherfucker. I said this to my patient. And, and, the, guy, and the guy was just a normal guy. And so it's very difficult to be a doctor trying to, so it's, it's, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like being a German citizen in 1938 and say, you know, I really like Jewish people. Well, that's not going to work for too long. So after a while, if you're a doctor, you either, you either realize that you are going to have to get with the federal government and throw your patients out on the street or you're going to have to put yourself in at grave risk, which means every day of your illustrious career will be filled with fear and loathing. This is not right. And the only way we're going to change this is, I'm telling you, just like I said earlier, the, the court of public opinion and good guys and ladies like Ron Chapman putting their necks on the line and telling a federal judge or a state judge, uh-uh, judge, it doesn't work that way. You have no authority, and that takes time and it takes money. Mark, would you like to share about yours? Uh, you know, <laughs> I can't say it any better than Arnold just did. <laughs> every, every prescription that I wrote, what was going through my head is this the last one? I would say to my patients, and I'm very transparent, as you know, I would say to my patients, I know this is hard for you. And I know that you feel suicidal from time to time. Any, who wouldn't? Um, but, but I got to let you know that if you kill yourself with these pills, you're taking me with you. <laughs> and, and not a single one of them did because I was honest with them. And I, and I begged them to use their, their medicines appropriately. And I weeded out the crazy ones and the, and the um, risky ones. But everyone was risky. Um, and yes, some patients altered my prescriptions and, and that sort of thing, and that caught them. But, but it's like, um, I'm, and that's the point. I'm asked to be a healer and a police officer. And you can't be both. You, you, the magic of the physician-patient relationship is about a trust and a consultancy that happens between two human beings. Well, maybe two human beings and their attorneys. Okay, but but now it's two human beings, their attorneys, the DEA, the, the FDA, the Board of Medicine, the pharmacy and the insurance companies. It's a very crowded exam room and I can hardly get my word in edgewise. So it's it is um, the biggest relief in my life was the day I stopped prescribing. 
And the biggest heartbreak I had in my life was the deaths of my patients that happened as a result of that. I got to live with that. It's very difficult, very difficult every day to realize that I had to quit for my own well-being because I knew I couldn't help anybody in prison. And now I'm writing cannabis prescriptions and that's fine. And I have this cushy life and it's like, I'm just so grateful that I'm not in prison. I'm in this, I would be in the same situation as Smithers or Henson or, or anybody else. And I, somehow I dodged that. And I want to share that with my colleagues. And the only way to dodge it is to tell the truth to your patients and to tell the truth to the public. When you get raided and you tell the truth and say, look, these patients were sick and I took care of them and I deserve a trophy or a blue medal. Um, I deserve something other than um, this pogrom. Claudia, this, can, we, can is, we send him a medal? Can we send him a medal, please? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so, when I hear Mark's story or any doctor's story, I, you know, I'll pick up the phone and I'll call Ron. I'm like, Ron, what, what can we do to get these doctors relief? What can the patient do? Um, and I think Ron can address that because it's, you know, we want to help the doctors. We don't want our doctors in prison. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a very easy solution. I mean, it's it's difficult in application um, because because the issues that we're going through cause a lot of pain for a lot of people. But we have to stop this culture of silence when it comes to speaking out on behalf of doctors. And this is something that Mark talked about earlier. But and I'll, and I'll tell you a story about it that. Uh, it's sort of a real life version of exactly what I'm asking for here. Um, but, but when a doctor first gets indicted, the first thing their attorney says is shut up, right? I don't believe that. I think that you can be vocal and I think that you can defend yourself. And I think that you have to because the silence is deafening if you don't, right? And then when a doctor is in trial and if, if the attorney even takes the case to trial and it comes time for them to testify and they're, they're chomping at the bit to defend their medical practice, the, the attorney says, no, it's too risky don't testify. And the silence there is deafening. And when um, it's time to talk about calling patient witnesses to the stand to defend the doctor and their good practice of medicine, the patients say, I don't, I don't know that I want to get in the middle because just like Claudia said, the, the pain that I have to go through every day just to fill a prescription is enough. And, and I can't fathom taking on the federal government or being labeled as a drug addict on a witness stand or being denied my prescription in the future. So they stay silent. So every person who could ever speak out against a doctor is silenced just by the fact that the doctor's going through this process of prosecution and indictment. Um, but there, there's a story where that silence was broken, if you just indulge me for a minute. I defended a doctor named Dr. Joel Osterling, and uh, he, was, he operated a small clinic in Michigan, but he was a Mayo Clinic-trained doctor who developed a test called the PSA. And the PSA is a test that many men, I think, over the age of Maybe, maybe 40 or 50 get, and it helps you determine whether or not you have prostate cancer. This guy is credited with saving millions of lives by developing this test. Well, he, he didn't want the busy practice anymore, so he bowed out, went to a small town in Michigan and practiced urology. A doctor next to him passed away, and the husband of that doctor said, I, I don't have a way to, to close out this practice or help these patients. Um, doctor, can you help out? And so this compassionate doctor, Osterling, decided to help. Well, that patient, that, that practice was full of pain patients. It was full of people who lived in 
sort of middle America, worked hard jobs, broke their back laboring and, um, and had pain and they were receiving pain medication and it didn't take much time for the DEA to come knocking, put Dr. Osterling in handcuffs, seize every, everything he'd ever earned from developing this PEA and being PSA and being a prominent urologist. And, and we decided to go to trial in his case after a year of battles. Um, during that trial, uh, I called patients to the witness stand and, and I won't divulge this patient's name, but there was a patient that went by the initials of AB and AB reluctantly decided, despite the fact that he was confined to, confined to a wheelchair, that he was 75 years old, that he'd uh, hurt himself gravely and it caused him significant pain to get out of bed. He loved this doctor so much that he decided to travel two hours um, to the courtroom, wait for two days for his turn to testify, and finally wheel himself in past the, the, the gallery and past the jury and jump in the witness stand. And on direct examination, I swear there wasn't a dry eye in the jury box because this guy told the jury about his pain. He told the jury about how this doctor cared and listened to him. He told the jury about how the doctor treated him. And it took two hours for that jury to come back in favor of Dr. Osterling. And he was acquitted on all counts and all of his assets were released. The problem with that case is that there are not many patients who will stand up for doctors like that patient did with Dr. Osterling. There are many patients who will keep their heads down because it's so hard to speak up. Um, but if we all speak up together, we can support each other and we can sort of erase this culture of silence that's been created and give doctors a voice to fight back. I agree, 100%. Wow. Um, what do you guys think about, uh, you know, the person that sits here and says, you know, I don't have to worry about it because this is never going to happen to me. Hmm. So pain's either coming for you or it's been here um, or you've had it already. So, so pain, pain is ubiquitous in life. Um, unfortunately, in order for the species to survive, we had to develop a brain that would forget pain. Otherwise, people would only have one baby. Um, so we are designed to forget pain. Even, even if we've had it, it's very difficult for us to remember it as an experience. It becomes a concept and it becomes distant. It's like, oh, I got over that. You can too. Uh -huh. and so, so this whole idea that uh, people in pain that can't get over it, most people get over their pain. You know, they have a pain. They have a kidney stone. They pass it. It hurts like a motherfucker. And then it's gone. And it's like, well, you know, my pain went away. Why won't yours? And, and it's, it's basically, um, uh, you know, a sort of a lack of empathy but 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 part of that is the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. It's like, have you ever tried that? <laughs> I've got boots, and every time I pull on them, I don't get any higher. Uh, and, and and so so this whole idea that we should be, um, uh, you know, this is the John Wayneism of our of our culture is that you should tough it out and stop whining. And you know, oh, you want to cry? I'll give you something to cry about. Well, you know, all of that stuff in our culture. You know, uh, you know, needs to be examined, re-examined, and discharged in terms of our ability to realize that, you know, we have a we have a constitution, a a, a declaration of independence that that indicates that we actually have the right for the pursuit of happiness. And if you're in agony, you cannot pursue happiness. It's unconstitutional to allow people to have the kind of pain we're letting them have. And and until we have that conversation culturally, this is going to continue because. Because we are human beings who tend to scapegoat and uh, discriminate against other populations. 
the, the problem with the pain population is that um, people in pain are not visible. Claudia, you look gorgeous today, and I know you're in pain. And it's like, um, and, and so, and same with you, Janelle. And it's like, I look pretty good too, and I'm in pain. And so, all of this stuff that, that you don't look like you're in agony, um, you don't look like you could be suffering as much as you say you are. Well, those are people who don't understand the physiology of pain and our ability to cope with it as humans. And, and I guess it's our job to tell that story. Um, I don't know how to do it, except I won't shut up until the rest of the culture gets it. Um, I'm not so optimistic that I that I'll get that approach across to my other citizens. But 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 I I know who's in pain. You know when your dog's in pain. How come you can't know that you're not that your loved one's not in pain? Of course we know what pain is. And this whole idea that doctors need more pain training. Can I take a little bit on that? Eighty percent of doctors' visits are based on pain. Yes, people say all the time, well, doctors don't get education in pain. I mean, your veterinarian gets more education in pain. Well, that's not true, but we don't measure it because every, um, every rotation in medical school, um, when I do my OBGYN rotation, it's not a lecture on pain. It's a lecture on what causes pain in the pelvis. Um, when I do my cardiology rotation, it's not about what's uh, treating pain. It's about treating chest pain. So most of the things we learn about are pain-related, but but specific to the different specialties. So the claim that doctors don't know anything about pain is, is uh, it, it's basically like a butterfly McQueen in the, in um, um, gone with the wind. I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. Well, of course you don't, you know, you haven't had one, but, but when you had pain, you know something about birth and babies. And, and so we have to actually um, uh, stick it to people who claim that, pain can't be described or that or that you can't sort out who's really in pain in your practice yes you can um i hear a lot of people uh uh you know share horror stories ron i was just wondering i mean like what can they do um if they go to a lawyer is there certain language they should use or or is there a certain type of lawyer they should go to if they have something that um, happens to them and they need help um, and for a doctor too. I mean, what what is that path like? Well, yeah. So I think that if a patient feels that their doctor or their pharmacist is not following their ethical guidelines, I would recommend that they immediately file a complaint with the state board. Now, it's very possible that that complaint may just get filed in the garbage can, right? But if enough of these types of complaints get filed with the state boards that doctors aren't fairly treating pain or that pharmacists are refusing to fill the prescriptions, our hope is that eventually those voices will be heard and something will be done about them. I have seen a few cases where pharmacists or doctors have been investigated for failing to properly diagnose and treat pain. Um, if you're a doctor and you feel that you're being investigated or you need more uh, uh, compliance in your practice, or you feel that you may possibly get indicted. I mean, you've got to call an attorney who's experienced in healthcare related matters and government investigations. And you got to be very careful before you use those limited resources you have and make sure that they're deployed in a direction that will actually bring you some results in your case. You know, I see too many uh, uh, doctors who are facing investigation and at that point have significant assets, um, spend, you know, a lot of money on these big, heavy, law firms that bill at $700 an hour only to see that all wasted on no results, right? So you've got to be very careful about the next steps that you make when you realize you need a defense. 
Um, but if you're if you're a pain patient, certainly uh, file those complaints. Uh, and if you're a pain patient and there's a need to talk to a lawyer about malpractice, the problem is is that malpractice lawyers, the plaintiffs lawyers who file cases against doctors, aren't likely to ca- to take cases of undertreatment of pain because the juries aren't there to hand out the verdicts and the judges are usually adverse to those types of cases. Uh, that's 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 a very difficult position to be in for a pain patient, and I think the medical board is really going to be your only recourse. There is some potential for class actions against the pharmacies, the large pharmacy corporations, um, and against uh, some other entities involved in um, in handling pain, pain medication, and enforcing regulations against doctors. Most of those have been losers. Um, I, I I think that the the, the closest Closest alligator to the boat, if you will, would be a class action against pharmacies for creating policies that require arbitrary guidelines on when medications get filled. I really see some traction in cases like that. And hopefully once those spring through into the courts, we will see the pharmacies acting quite differently. Thank you. Hey, Claudia, um, what do you, th- if, if somebody, the everyday person wants to help out, um, what would you suggest that they can do or places that they can join? So I understand that not everybody's a fighter um, because when Ron was saying how patients don't want to fight, I'm thinking, what what kind of person doesn't want to fight? Who doesn't love a good fight? <laughs> so, but what you can do is obviously protest on October 7th. Um, because of Dr. Fellman, we do have lawyers who have moved forward with the class action lawsuit against large chain pharmacies. And that's only taken what? almost 700 days, but you can, you know, join the Facebook page, Don't Punish Pain Rally, and organize, help organize on October 7th. You can copy of my legislation, uh, which has trickled into many states. Uh, Amazingly enough, it just passed both the House and the Senate in New Hampshire um, from one of our Don't Punish Pain Rally members. So we're, we're starting to see change, and it's intimidating for patients to get on the phone with their local reps and senators. All of my, I live in the smallest state in the country, all of my reps and senators know who I am, and they're probably at this point like, give her what she wants, but it, it's, this didn't happen overnight in Rhode Island. You know, you have to get to know your state, familiarize yourself with overdose rates. So when you testify before a committee, you can say, this is not a prescription pain medication problem, and now nobody is willing to prescribe. So get on Facebook, join the Don't Punish Pain Rally. If you're suffering, you need help, you can find us at the doctorpatientforum.com. Myself and Dr. Fellman get on the phone with you, and we offer solutions, not suffering. And, you know, stay strong. It's hard to ask people to stay strong, but... We're making traction. We're making more traction now than any other pain advocacy group has done in the past. And I do not get money from pharmaceutical companies because when I meet Andrew Kolodny face-to-face, I can say, I don't receive money from pharmaceutical companies. And you accuse every advocacy group of doing so. So it's on. Um, And we're going to get there. We're going to win. We're going to take down all of these anti-opioid crusaders. Um, we're going to get these doctors out of prison. We're going to get some good compliance in their offices with the help of Ron Chapman. And we're going to keep fighting the good fight. Uh, Dr. Feldman, did you have anything you wanted to add before we get going here? Uh, 
just just basically to reiterate the same thing. We have got to have a presence in 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 the public's eye where like the AARP. Everybody knows what the AARP stands for, right? It stands truly, truly an organization that is an arm of the insurance industry, but people look at them as, as an organization that helps millions of senior citizens. We need to have way more than 13,400 members. We need a million members. And if you believe that there are that many patients out there, we need to be a force to be reckoned with. And that when Don't Punish Pain knocks on a congressman's door, they don't, we don't have to tell them who we are. And, and I, I, I want to see exponential growth in this organization. Uh, Dr. Epson, did you have any uh, last words that you wanted to say before we wrap up? Did I say this yet? Pain's a fucking terrorist, <laughs> and and it's um, and pardon my my passion about this, but I just can't express this any differently. I'm either going to scream or cry or both, um, and it's complex. It requires curiosity. It, it requires open-mindedness. Um, I initially saw all my patients as criminals until I got related to them. And essentially, the fundamental bottom line is to the extent that we create people in boxes and label them, we can't see them as humans. And the patient-physician relationship absolutely demands that we relate to our patients as humans and that we care enough to really find out what's going on with them now that's going to take longer than six minutes but if you listen the patient will give you the diagnosis if you listen to their loved ones they'll let you know yes they're better off of these medicines or no they're not they can't get out of bed um and you can you can walk that subtle minefield of which is what is appealing about being a doctor it's it's sorting out a complex problem for a patient and giving them the support and consultation that they deserve as a human being without, without um, regard to the danger you're putting yourself in. Um, and, you know, it's a dangerous business now. And that is, that is no way to have a good healthcare system. And, and we've, ultimately, these kind of attitudes will leak to every other specialty. This, this is not going to get better. Um, the physician-patient relationship is rotting, and if it continues to rot, we will not have a healthcare system. We will continue to have a sick care system. Thank you, uh, Ron. Would you like to add anything before we get going? Um, no, no. Just that I want to say, keep up the fight. Keep defending your doctors. Doctors, make sure that you get the compliance you need before entering into the prescriber space. And if you need any assistance with compliance whatsoever or just somebody to talk to, visit chapmanlawgroup.com, pick up the phone, give me a call. I'd be happy to walk through some compliance tips. My interest is in making sure that your patients um, stay happy and well and that you can prescribe without fear of being attacked by the Department of Justice. And whatever we need to do to get you there, we're more than happy to do. Uh, Ron, take your, take your vitamins, Ron, because I think we're going to keep you busy. <laughs> Will do. We need to duplicate all of you. I just wanted to thank you all so much for coming on and uh, joining me for this hour plus 
Um, the information you gave is wonderful. The advocacy work you do is amazing. And seriously, we need to duplicate you guys all. So thank you. Watch thank the you movie, know. Pain Warriors. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, all right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that eighth round table discussion. We had a lot of players in the game this time, but it was fun to produce something with so many people. Um, I thought Janelle did a great job. Remember, you can check out Janelle Elgaway's other work at Conspiracies Against Wellness and at the Doctor's Corner on YouTube. Um, I want to thank Dr. Mark Ibsen and Dr. Arnold Feldman. They wanted to relay uh, that everybody check out Pain Warriors movie, the movie Pain Warriors at painwarriorsmovie.com. Uh, kind of fills in a lot of the gaps about what's been going on in terms of this uh, whole um, pain management issue that's that's uh, really kind of gaining some steam. Not, not really talked about in the mainstream for sure, but uh, starting to affect tens of millions of, pe of people. And as you could see from this interview uh, and this roundtable discussion, a lot of these people are really personally affected. Uh, I want to thank also Ronald Chapman, Esquire. Uh, you can find out more about him and the legal side of this whole conversation at chapmanlawgroup.com as well as Claudia Mirandi at don'tpunishpainrally.com and the doctorpatientforum.com um, for doing all the activism work that she's doing trying to make some legislative changes. So check out those websites uh, if you want to see what you can do uh, to try to make a, a positive difference. Um, as always, I want to thank Rob Rubin for putting it all together at Transparent Media Truth. Uh, you can find this and all other roundtable discussions at transparentmediatruth.com. And my name is Doug McKenty. I am the host of the weekly podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty. Uh, you can find out more about that work uh, on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm on Twitter at McKenty. And uh, you can find out all about it at www.theshiftnow.com. Um, so thanks again for checking this out. Uh, and I hope you check out more of these roundtable discussions. It's been really fun um, being a part of this, getting to uh, organize more than just a one-on-one -on -one group, but getting a bunch of people together to have these kinds of conversations I think is really important. We get a lot of different points of view. So I uh, hope you're enjoying them as much as I am. And uh, you all have a great day. I'll see you on the flip side. Take care. Opinions and ideas expressed in this roundtable discussion do not necessarily reflect the views of Transparent Media Truth, but only those of the speakers participating in the discussion. Under the Copyright Disclaimer within Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, allowances are made for fair use of public content for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by copyright statute that might otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit, educational, or personal use tips the balance in favor of fair use.